Hello, and welcome to the US-China Conversation. I'm Michael Vatikiotis, your host for this podcast and the Asia Director of the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. Our aim today is to explore the risk of armed conflict between the United States and China at a time when diplomatic relations are acrimonious and military activities in the Pacific have increased. I'll be asking whether the two governments and militaries are prepared to manage potential crises and prevent the escalation to conflict. I'm joined by Scott Swift, a retired U.S. Navy Admiral who commanded the U.S. Pacific Fleet until 2018, and Zhu Feng, Executive Director of the China Center for Collaborative Studies of the South China Sea at Nanjing University. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let me ask you both. Do you think that the risk of unintended conflict between the United States and China has grown, given how tense relations are at the political and diplomatic level at this point in time? Admiral Scott, why don't you go first? I do think they are increased, the chances of an unintended conflict. But I would expand my answer to the question beyond just the tension in the relations. That's certainly a contributing factor, but there's many others as well. The issue is so complicated, people try to do the predictive analysis of what the next trigger might be. And I think that's a bit of a fool's errand. We need to recognize the potential of a trigger, the significant downside of such a trigger, you know, the events that, that, that would follow, and the, the difficulty in regaining um, status quo even, uh, much less uh, reduced tensions if that were to occur given the current global situation, given the national situation in China, and given the national situation in the U.S. Su Fang, what's your view? Yeah, I can't uh, agree with Admiral Scott more on his analysis. I think unintended conflict now is a very big risk. Beijing also monitoring the Americans' warships and the bombers and patrolling in some sort of a dangerous distance. So let's try to paint a picture of, of how uh, such a conflict might be triggered and, and, and also resolved. Scott, how do you think that this kind of uh, mishap or incident could occur? I think Zhu Fong, his characterization of it from an unintended perspective is exactly right. Uh, some event that would occur, a collision, you know, while I was the commander of the Pacific Fleet, we had uh, two significant uh, collisions that occurred. Can you imagine how as significant as they were, what the implications would have been if the other ship involved, other than the U.S. ship, was a PLAN ship. So Zufeng, what would happen next if there was such an unintended collision in the South China Sea? First, then we will see some sort of a mutual posture by the either side, Chinese and uh, Americans. Particularly after the uh, pandemic outbreak, a lot of American strategists and the politicians make advantage of the Chinese side. Then we will see America's military presence in South China Sea now is unbelievably just a build up and they're also getting reinforced very, very uh, dramatically. POA also feel very unhappy about America's increased you know, the military presence in South China Sea after the Wuhan just got into the lockdown. So then we, POA consider U.S. show the, the merciless deterrence driving in South China Sea, just trying to back the China off. Then we will see the major tension between the China and U.S. in the maritime area of the Asian Pacific now 
it seems to me, is also uh, multiplying. Scott, isn't it a fair point that even though the United States makes it clear that it will reserve the right to conduct freedom of navigation operations, I mean, the fact that three nuclear-powered aircraft carriers are now in the Western Pacific and there's been an increase in the number of patrols out of, say, Singapore in these areas, doesn't that actually increase and ratchet up the pressure? It does. Having said that, I think it underscores the importance for a broader, more consistent and deeper dialogue in all domains, not just this this unofficial discussion that the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue sponsors, but much more broadly into the formal lanes of government and across uh, diplomacy, statecraft, military, financial business, uh, all of them. I completely understand Zhu Feng's characterization of the perception on the Chinese side, and particularly the PLAN, that this is well orchestrated. The three carriers that are active now in the Western Pacific was done to take advantage of this resurgence that uh, unfortunately China is facing in the virus. And this gets back to your previous question about unintended consequences. As tensions increase, then if there were to be an unintended incident that occurred, a collision or something, it would be even more problematic to de-escalate. One problem seems to be, and I think Zhu Feng indicated this earlier, that there's an eagerness on both sides, in Beijing and in Washington sometimes, to quickly politicize the slightest mishap. And, and rather than thinking of how to diffuse the situation before political imperatives on both sides are brought to bear, there quickly is an escalation because there's political rhetoric on both sides. Admiral Scott, speaking as a former naval commander, how much do these tensions at the political level affect military-to-military relations and how commanders on the ground and at sea make decisions? My sense is, in, in working with my counterparts, when I was the Pacific Fleet Commander, the three fleet commanders in the Chinese Navy, the PLAN, there was great understanding of this. I mean, the, the sea is the great equalizer amongst navies. I mean, it's an environment that we all work in. It's the same environment that we understand it. And we understand that tensions that occur in the maritime domain, their origins almost invariably are from the shore. The challenge was getting to a solution set was oftentimes beyond our, our level of control. Zufang, do you agree that actually on the Chinese side that there are reliable channels that can be used at the professional level? Of course we do. I think the PLA, of course, is uh, quite a young compared to the American Navy. Anyway, I see both sides probably is highly motivated to just drive up the mill-mill relations. Even getting back to the last of November, then we will see POA and, and American military also concludes, let's say, humanitarian aids targeted, you know, giant drilling. I think now, since the Trump came to the power, it's getting quite rare between U.S. and China to have some sort of intense and a significant mill-mill relations. But last November's case is just a rare uh, demonstrative, you know, the evidence two militaries should stand and sticking together. Well, I mean, that's a very good point, Zufang, that, you know, there's been a lot of concern expressed about how communications and channels between the two militaries and at the diplomatic level also have, relatively speaking, dried up in the last year or so 
as the relationship has become more problematic. And I've heard this on both sides. There's a need for these channels of communication, both between the militaries and also at the political level, to be restored so that the relationship can function more normally. I would like to ask you, Scott, that what I've heard is that actually there are in existence hotlines and the means of communication at a professional level. But one hears conflicting stories. One, that maybe they don't exist in quite the way that they should do to address such incidents at sea. And also that perhaps there's a reluctance on one side or another to actually pick up the phone and discuss these issues. Uh, It's an excellent point. The mechanisms of communication I would describe as being predictively positive. So when they occur, they're episodic, but when they occur, they are generally positive between peers of the U.S. Navy and the PLAN, in particular between uh, 7th and 3rd Fleet units and the PLAN, which is more of counterpart to counterpart. That's largely done through cues. So this allows vessels at sea to communicate using traditional naval mechanisms, flags and, and such, to get through the language barriers to reduce the likelihood of unintended consequence, such as a a collision or whatever it may be. When people talk about this hotline, certainly the mechanisms are there, the hardware is there, but they're absolutely controlled by policy. It takes so long to rebuild a relationship. That's why it's not just the establishment of a hotline, but the regular exercising of it between the principles that it's designed to serve, whether it's at the fleet commander level, whether it's at the COCOM, their counterparts on the uh, PLA side, or at a higher level in government. Yeah, of course, I think uh, Scott made great points. I think basically the male relations as a whole is consequence of a political, you know, temperature on either side's capitals. If the leadership could just house a warming up relationship, then such a spillover effects also will be very naturally and spontaneously just getting into the military aspect. Then what was, I also see after Trump came to the power, so for example, trade war is a big punch from Washington to Beijing. Then we will see the both sides relationships really just increasingly apart. So male-male relations also being, it seemed to me, a sideline. We needed to invite the Americans' military office over to China, sitting, sitting down and have a serious dialogue on how we can just uh, have, say, understand each other's position and some sort of extra measures we can figure that out to reduce any possibility of unintended military conflict. My view is that it also requires some sort of a political enthusiasm both leadership. Zufang, uh, earlier Admiral Swift referred to the cues, the code for unplanned encounters at sea, as a very useful mechanism to um, prevent unintended conflict. I'm wondering if actually the cues may need adjusting. I know that they were agreed in China some years ago, and they've been working reasonably well. But in a more sensitive time, when there is a greater risk of confrontation, Is there a need for other kinds of risk management mechanisms, something maybe accused plus, something that maybe uh, takes into account the greater politicization of the relationship, the speed with which information now travels using social media? I'm wondering if actually just a sort of 
boilerplate code for unplanned encounters is sufficient? And maybe, Zhu Feng, if you answer that first, and then maybe Admiral Swift afterwards. To be honest, I think the QZ is not enough for the moment to get the U.S. and the Chinese, Americans and the Chinese uh, unintended encounter, because QZ usually have uh, some restriction on how to safely just, uh, how say, we say sail and also uh, piloting J fighters. But if we're examining some sort of a lot of concrete cases where then we will see the U.S. and the Chinese warships and the Jades just has an unintentedly encounter. It's not just how to safely uh, control their, you know, the vessel and, and, and the plane. Most important thing is they should understand. So what will be at a risk based on case studies? And I think the Scott may also agree on me. So I see there is a growing necessity for both military to talk and hamming out some sort of a new code of conduct to boost some sort of a safety and a security. Scott, do you agree with that? I, I do agree. I'm also skeptical is too strong a term. We have to expand this discussion out of the military. I remain concerned that this almost exclusive focus on the military element of the relationship, this competitive relationship, is one of the most problematic issues within the relationship because escalation can occur so quickly in that domain and be very difficult to control. I want to step back just one quick moment to the to the previous point, and that is to underscore Zhu Feng's comment about how important communication is. There's a common phrase that is used. It's so easy to judge because it's so hard to understand. The reason that increased communication is, is so critical is so we have a deeper understanding of what our intent is on both sides and the implications of actions that we take. We reference that in discussion with the three carriers currently underway. One side suggesting it was done with great forethought and malice to take advantage of the current increase of challenge of the COVID virus management within China. So set that aside for just a minute. Adjusting something like cues is very difficult in times of increased tension, such as we're in now. Without an appetite for dialogue, I find it hard to imagine how those discussions would occur. And either side, I, I think, would be very reluctant to engage in them. And then to underscore it, it's close to impossible in times of crisis. So when in times of whatever the normal status quo is, that's when we should be increasing these dialogues. But what we find is we kind of take a deep breath, both sides, all sides, and maneuver to position themselves in the greatest position of individual power instead of positioning themselves to a position of common understanding. So Admiral Swift, how would you be able to expand that dialogue beyond the military to military level? It's a very insightful question. First is we have an example to turn to, and that is the example that occurred when General Mattis, Secretary Mattis was the Secretary of Defense and the issue that the U.S. was dealing with is increased tensions and the increased threat from North Korea. And as we're seeing now, we saw then, from a U.S. government perspective, there was a tendency to turn to the military 
as the lead in these type of situations. And uh, Secretary Mattis was very clear that the Department of Defense was in support of State Department. So there's the example is, is I do think the discussion is too focused on the military elements of the relationship. And when it comes to uh, UNCLOS and other issues, it's the State Department that needs to be in the lead. That's one example. The other thing I would say is we're missing an opportunity to include the financial domain, if you will, the business domain. There are so many. We have much more in common than we have in competition with China. And in order to build a relationship, it's very difficult to just focus on the areas of conflict. This is true of a personal or professional relationship. So to move the relationship forward, we need to focus on the area where there are common interests. I mean, the global pandemic is an example of finding those areas where we can collaborate now, build the trust to the point that we can address those areas that are more fractionist than others. But I think that example of Secretary Mattis left for us in uh, DOD being in support of state is a great example, a great place to start. I wanted to mention a point that I saw written by one of our colleagues, Hubo, at uh, Peking University, where he said that in addition to the problems that you've already outlined in terms of the lack of communication and the politicization of and the rhetorical extent to which the relationship is politicized, he said, we need to let professionals do their work. The China-US military rivalry has been unduly influenced by the media, commentators, and some politicians, which amplifies the intensity of that competition and is likely to lead to self-fulfilling prophecies. I thought that the interesting point he makes there is about the influence on what we see happening at sea and the scenarios that you've illustrated of the media, commentators, and politicians. Do you agree with that, Zufang? I totally, totally convinced Americans' military as well as as Chinese military. American military is completely professional one. Chinese military is increasingly professionalized. So this reality should just always have in mind. We should stand firm on our professional spirits. I think the military usually is also very, very important safeguards of our stable and expectable relations rather than just the how they take the tide of the political you know, vulnerability and even political hostility. Scott, do you, do you share Zhu Feng's view that professionalism at the end of the day is, is what will be the most important uh, factor? Well, I, I think it's unfortunately, I do agree with them, but unfortunately it's one of the few factors and it's going to be insufficient as I think everyone in this conversation has agreed, and everyone that I know, we all agree that it's hard to imagine either the Chinese or the Americans intentionally creating an event uh, such as a, a collision or something of that consequential level. So if we can agree on that, that the fact that such an event would be unintentional Professionalism uh, reduces the likelihood at the tactical level of it happening. But once it occurs at the tactical level, professionalism is unfortunately, in my opinion, not going to be sufficient to control the escalation uh, curve that is most concerning to me. Uh, Let me go back to Hubo's comments. I think that his comments are, are exactly where we should be focused on. I could not agree more 
in uh, the words themselves and the tone and tenor of it. And, I, and I'm not disagreeing with uh, Zhu Feng. I think that Hubo is envisioning a better place for us to be. I think Zhu Feng's uh, comments are more focused on where we are. I'm reminded of uh, comments, uh, previous Secretary Gates, the Secretary of the Military, as well as of uh, the CIA, uh, has a book coming out. He made comments that if you only view the only tool in your toolbox as being a military, he characterized it as being a hammer, then you tend to look at everything as a nail. And I, that, that's where my issue <laughs> is on the military side, is that innovation is the way forward. And I would point out that one of my greatest concerns is the Center for a Humanitarian Dialogue. And this is a positive statement, Michael. Don't, don't let your heart race here. Um, I participated in uh, hosted events by the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. My criticism is they're the exception. And it's on the Chinese side, my guess is they're much more successful at carrying the results into the government. So the government is informed. Chinese government is informed about uh, the dialogue, uh, perspectives from both sides. That is not the case on the U.S. side. It's much more problematic to, to find a source to bring this product for to. And I know the center is focused on how to help in that process. But not only do I agree with Hubo's comments, I also want to point out that organizations like the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue are particularly important now to ensure this dialogue continues because it's not occurring in uh, government forms to the extent that it needs to. Well, I very much appreciate the plug, Scott. Thank you very much. Um, and we will, of course, continue these dialogues, both on the virtual platforms, also hopefully face-to-face, -face, where we've been able to meet in Beijing and elsewhere, and hopefully we'll get back to that. Finally, I'd like to just ask you both, just if you could very briefly identify what the first thing you would do to what sort of mechanism or arrangement you would choose right now to put in place to prevent what we described earlier as an unintended mishap uh, that could lead to greater conflict. What's the one mechanism that you would choose to move forward as quickly as possible? Zhu Feng first. Neither side should just, uh, have say, be highly careful to avoiding any some sort of a risk-taking gesture wherever we encounter at the sea or in air? Scott? It's a great question. Uh, so the one thing would be increase the dialogue at all levels between the Chinese Foreign Ministry and the U.S. State Department. Up and down the chain of command, if you will, not just at the Secretary and Foreign Minister level, but uh, down through their subordinates uh, as well. And there we end this edition of the U.S.-China Conversation. Scott Swift, Zhu Feng, thank you for being my guest today. Thank you. Thank you. I was joined by Scott Swift, a retired U.S. Navy Admiral who commanded the U.S. Pacific Fleet until 2018, and Zhu Feng, Executive Director of the China Center for Collaborative Studies of the South China Sea at Nanjing University. And if you've enjoyed the show, please spread the word and leave a review on the platform where you get your podcasts. And I hope you'll excuse the odd technical glitch due to podcasting under the restraints of social distancing. The U.S.-China Conversation was brought to you by the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, a private Swiss foundation dedicated to peace. For now, from me, Michael Vatikiotis, join me soon. But until next time, goodbye.